This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex and my theme for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today... Being Black in Canada is the largest incubator program dedicated to black filmmakers in the country. Aline Barbero tells you all about it. Green hydrogen is becoming a renewable energy alternative. Lawrence Gunther explains how it can assist in the move away from fossil fuels. Plus, it's Tuesday, so there's another edition of the weekly news quiz. We have some subs filling in, so Elizabeth Moeller, Brock Richardson, and Karen McGee put their knowledge to the test. All that and more to come on today's show, but we begin, like we always do, with the top news stories of the day. We start off with a story that may seem obvious, but whenever you get statistics and data to back up gut feeling, it's always important to share. A new poll finds that a majority of Canadians are feeling stressed about the economy and have little trust in the government to be able to fix the big issues around housing and health care. Proof Strategies Can Trust Index Chair Bruce McClellan says that the lack of trust stems from stress and anxiety. Anxiety translates into many other things, including lower trust. If people don't feel like they're getting a, a fair deal, if people are feeling uh, that they're not advancing or getting ahead or taking care of their families, they start to lose trust. Over to the sports world, the Invictus Games will be returning to Canada next year as Whistler and Vancouver host the international competition. Invictus Games CEO Scott Moore says that while it is a competition, the Games offers something more for the athletes. There's a camaraderie that you don't see between nations in, in other sports. It's far more, uh, I would say, collegial. And they understand that what we're doing is uh, participating in a sporting event, but also participating in each other's journey to wellness. The Games will be held from February 8th to the 16th. And now another news, a retired Vice Admiral Hayden Edmondson is set to face cross-examination today as his sexual assault trial continues. Narya Ahmed has the details. Edmondson told the court he did not have any sexual contact with the woman accusing him of rape and indecent exposure. The woman, whose identity is protected by a court order, says the incidents happened when she was in the Navy's most junior rank and he was a senior officer while they were deployed together in 1991. She says following a pattern of progressively bad behavior, Edmondson sexually assaulted her when they were both off-duty and the ship was docked at a U.S. port. The complainant testified for three days last week, and the trial is set to continue today. Naira Ahmed, the Canadian Press. Police have begun using tear gas on protesters in India who are demanding guaranteed prices on crops. Karen Thomas has more. 
Police dropped tear gas canisters over the protesting farmers from a drone at one of the border points that leads to New Delhi. Tens of thousands of farmers are also headed to the capital on tractors and trucks. The farmers who began their march in northern Haryana and Punjab states are asking for a guaranteed minimum support price for all farm produce. The demonstration comes more than two years after Prime Minister Narendra Modi withdrew controversial agriculture laws that had triggered the earlier protests. Those protests in 2021 saw tens of thousands of farmers camped outside the capital through a harsh winter and a devastating COVID-19 surge. I'm Karen Chamas. And back here at home, a little bit of an interesting story here. A long missing shipwreck has been found in Lake Superior. Ed Donahue has the details of this discovery. Okay, I'm coming up on something. The bulk carrier Arlington was found in about 650 feet of water off Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula. I'm at the smokestack, the bottom of it, that was bent over. Now I'm going over the top of it. The Arlington left Port Arthur, Ontario in 1940, oh, fully I'm loaded with so wheat and headed to Owen Sound, back. Ontario, under the command of Captain Frederick Tady Bug Burke. It began to take on water. All crew made it safely off the ship, except for Burke, who went down with the Arlington. Shipwreck researcher Dan Fountain found the Arlington. Just he says it's moved. exciting to solve just one more of Lake Superior's many mysteries, adding he hopes this final chapter in her story can provide some measure of closure to the family of Captain Burke. I'm Ed Donahue. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the Daily Polls. We begin with the results from yesterday's poll where I asked you, what is your favorite web browser? I didn't give you the choice to go off the board. You had to choose from one of the big four. The results were 36% of you said Google Chrome, 31% said Mozilla Firefox, 10% said Microsoft Edge, and 23% said Apple Safari. We did have a couple of responses to that. James tweeted, I still have an issue of browsing interference from Google while using Safari or Bing. Google always pops up requesting to be a default browser while using other browsers. Philippe on Facebook wrote, Google Chrome is so cool as well. But for me, it does not match Microsoft Edge and Firefox and the Safaris of the world. They are bringing us the greatest results of searching on the web Philippe was very excited with a lot of explanation points in that one. Today's daily poll, though, I want to find out from you because this is going to be something that's going to come up in my conversation with Rebecca Dingwell later on in the show. How much do online reviews impact your decision to consume media? A lot, a little, or not at all? So... Let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller, who is still filling in as co-host, and Laura Bain to get their perspectives. So, Elizabeth, I'll start with you. How much does uh, do online reviews impact whether or not you're going to consume media? I'm going to say a little. I would say that for me, I tend to weigh a lot more heavily on like personal reviews. So talking to you and saying, hey, Alex, what did you think about Sight Unseen? And do you like it? I find quite often the online reviews um, either make something look really good. And then I find I sit down to watch it or read it or listen to it, depending on what it is. And then I'm disappointed. Or 
something will get a really bad review on something like IMDb. And then I go to watch it. I'm like, that was really good. And I think it has to do with my rather obscure taste in certainly television and books. Um, I like a lot of B-rated, a lot of independent films. So sort of the big, the big blockbusters don't really do it for me. So even if something gets a really good review, I'm likely not to probably enjoy it as much. I also find, especially when it's television or movie media, um, I rely heavily on the audio description and that often doesn't make it into reviews. So I want to talk to people that have watched it or maybe even just watch a trailer myself to see how good is the quality of the, the audio description. Um, and I, th I think for me, the other piece that I often think about in reviews is, um, you know, I, I, I like to watch a lot of stuff that, that deals with, um, you know, EDI and disability. Um, so, you know, how is that captured or not in reviews? So I'm going to say a little, but I tend to really think a lot more um, and lean a lot more heavily on personal recommendations and reviews. So if Laura Bain recommends a good book to me, I'm much more likely to pick it up than if I just saw something, um, you know, reviewed on Facebook or X. Well, and, and you mentioned the value if it's a movie or a TV show of what is the audio description like. That's part of why we, every single time we do a film review, we do a uh, series review, if we have Amy and Manti, if we have Kim Thistle or Mike, Michael McNeely on, we always try to find out the perspective of that audio description because it is so important for those mm -hmm. who need it and it's rarely talked about. So it's exactly. always that key caveat. Laura Bain, what about you? How much do online reviews impact your decision to consume content? I'm going to also say a little bit, and it's interesting because when it comes to other things like uh, restaurants or purchasing things or hotel rooms, I would say that reviews are probably the biggest factor that I look at, but I don't really think about it a lot when it comes to media. And maybe the exception to that is when I'm buying books from Audible, I do look at the reviews and kind of take it into consideration if something has a really low rating, but then I will go to the individual reviews because I sort of take, I guess, them with a grain of salt and see, well, what did people not like about it? Because maybe that's something that doesn't matter to me. But uh, when it comes to you know, things like what I watch on Netflix or Prime, I also feel like the reviews aren't really readily available. And so I don't tend to think about them a lot apart from maybe something like a top 10 list, which I guess would maybe come in at like ratings or reviews and that a lot of people are watching something. I, I think Elizabeth's point is really interesting um, and kind of something I hadn't thought of, but I think is a factor for me as well, that as a member of a marginalized community, when you're looking at something like reviews, I think you can have this sort of air of of wondering how much it's going to reflect uh, sort of your own viewpoint and, you know, maybe taking that with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, so, yeah, I get a little. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, sure. and I think you kind of both touched on it a little bit, that the idea that if you're looking at a review online, very rarely are they going to be measured, they're going to be contemplative, it's going to be a nuanced review, it's either going to be the greatest thing in the world or the worst thing in the world. There's really not that much in between. Even if you see, oh, this has like a 3.5 out of 5, you're probably going to get a lot of 5s and a lot of 1s in there. So it's kind of hard to figure out what is the real fact from fiction, what's being overhyped or, or undersold, so to speak.
Well, and things like images and, and you know, graphics that are so often, um, you know, there's certainly a, a number of movies that I've seen reviewed on Netflix, and they talk a lot about the cinematography and the, this, um, you know, the, the way that the, the, the graphics and photos were done, which is, is great if you can see, but for me, that doesn't even go into a review. So mm -hmm. sometimes I find, too, a lot of the stuff in reviews isn't perhaps rel as, as relevant. I shouldn't say not relevant, but as relevant to me as somebody that's totally blind. Very yeah. good. Absolutely. There's the question about like, is it going to be culturally relevant to me? And then is it going to be accessible? And certainly, uh, I would say audio description, uh, you know, seeing that little AD is a much bigger oh, factor big, for big me time. when I'm yeah. picking out my content versus, <laughs> versus, you know, whether it's got 4.1 or 4.5 or, or what have you. Well, very good. Thank you both for chiming in. This is obviously going to be something we're going to pick up later in the show with Rebecca Dingwell when we focus in more on literature and books. But for now, I want to hear from you at home. So how much do online reviews impact your decision to consume media? A lot, a little, or not at all? You can vote on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc., on Twitter at Accessible Media, sorry, on X at Accessible Media. You can also give us a, an email, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Being Black in Canada is the largest incubator program dedicated to black filmmakers in the country. Aline Ribeiro tells you all about it. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. And now with Dave Brown on AMI, I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. The 12th edition of the Toronto Black Film Festival kicks off tomorrow. In addition to the film screenings, there will be special a special program hosted by the Fabienne Colas Foundation called Being Black in Canada. The program is Canada's largest indic uh, in incubator, I am struggling to get through this script, incubator dedicated to black filmmakers. Aline Ribeiro has all the details for you, and Aline is the coordinator of the program. Hello, Aline. How are you doing today? Dave, I'm fine. And you? I'm not too bad. So uh, this year's program will feature participants from the 2023 uh, edition. But before we get into the details, like I, I want to find out what is the mission and the purpose of the Being Black in Canada program? Um, the main uh, thing is that uh, back there when and when Fabienne created the program, uh, the main thing is because like she's from Haiti, and uh, when she went living in Canada, she's an actress, and she didn't have uh, the opportunities to to work with uh, what she does with acting and directing and everything like this, because um, it's not a, a, a big, um, there is not so much diversity in the film industry, especially for black people. So then Fabienne uh, thought about, um, I had this idea of, of creating the program so that we can uh, input uh, young filmmakers initially uh, in the film industry. And nowadays we are even, uh, some of them are even uh, working at big uh, um, organizations and stuff like that. So mainly it's to, it, the, the idea is to 
um, give opportunity to, to black filmmakers. And to dive a bit deeper, like how is this program addressing that lack of diversity in the film industry? Um, it's, um, we, we do have struggles because um, the industry is not so um, open yet. It's much better nowadays, but uh, it's not so open yet. But um, what we do is try to hire as much black professionals uh, working with us uh, during the program for the workshops, for the mentorship, and also for the team, for the Being Black uh, in Canada team. So um, we are, we are um, we, we have a way to hire or to bring together the most um, of of black professionals uh, to to the team, so we can just like uh, spread the news. And then uh, for the filmmakers, for example, as I said, there are some of uh, them working at big organizations, and um, also some of them are working with us. Like I, we have people from the 2022 cohort that are now helping us to produce the Halifax Black Film Festival and also the Toronto Black Film Festival. So it's a way to 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 bring together as much um, black professionals as we can. And so, what training and mentorship is being offered in within this program for emerging black filmmakers? Um, before they start uh, shooting their films, their, their short films, we do our best to at least introduce them to to the the film industry. Like let's say like this. So it's like um, we have screenwriting mentorship, we have uh, directing mentorship, storytelling, and also the short docs. They are supposed to be documentaries. It's not fiction. It's not documentaries because once once the program uh, is called Being Black in Canada, this is um, the point of view we want you to have as a result in the end of the process. When you see the film, you're like, oh, this is what, what you go through once uh, you were a black filmmaker um, being in Canada. And so the Being Black in, in Canada program, it's going to be presented uh, on February 16th at Carleton Cinema as part of the Toronto Black Film Festival. Who are some of the, uh, the filmmakers that you are highlighting this year? Um, it's also it's always so difficult to highlight them because um, it's um, as I said, there are so many um, single stories. It's so singular. So we have we have stories of people um, whose family were um, migrating from uh, Nigeria, for example, or the other um, countries in 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 Africa. Sorry. Um, we have uh, we we've been having like um, for a couple of years and still have some uh, films talking about uh, the struggle um, of uh, 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 mental health, especially uh, after the pandemic and how how do we as black people deal with that and especially men because um, some, some, some of them just don't, don't talk about it. And then uh, how, how, how is it, how it can be uh, struggling for them? 
And yeah, so I, 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 I like to say that it's really difficult to highlight someone like this, that, or that film because they are all really emotional and, and, uh, yeah, it's like we, we, we usually say we, we produce around 20 to, to 25, uh, documentaries every year and it's impossible to choose one because they are all so singular that it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how, how we can get to this um, result after all the, the process that the filmmakers go through. Well, and it's also, as you say, like these are authentic stories. This is from their perspective. This is These are important stories to share, and each one has their own personal uh, kind of involvement in it. So it's hard to really choose one over the other, especially yes, when these are documentaries. Exactly. Yes, exactly, because... Yes, it's like um, you see. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about the ones uh, I saw and also the ones from this uh, year, and it's like, um, yeah, they are so because um, something I, I was thinking about before we start this conversation. It's like when we interview uh, um, the filmmakers before we when we start the process of interviewing them, so we can uh, choose which ones uh, are going to be with us. Um, they come with so um, lots of stories and lots of expectations. And then when the film is uh, is finished, you're like, wow, like we've made it because, uh, yeah, some people just come to us with lots of uh, um, emotional and, and deep um, life stories. So it's it's really um, worthy. At the end of it, when 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 you see the the movies, you're like, oh my god, I'm I'm glad I'm part of it. And so, how can a a young uh, black filmmaker who who wants to get involved, how can they get involved? What's the process process like them to uh, to figure out how to um, get involved in the program? We we have the websites and we are on uh, Instagram as well, the beingblackincanada.com, and uh, we're about to to launch the call for application for the 2024 uh, cohort. So uh, once people go there, there is all this uh, rules and regulation. And it's important uh, that the, the black person, the, 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 the person applying for that is between 18 and 30 years old. Um, and then, yes, we go through this process of, of receiving the applications and then uh, based on what we receive, we call for interviews and then we we put together all our thoughts and, and um, how can we uh, make those stories uh, come out and then uh, we start with the with the mentorship and then uh when the mentorships are finished the mentorship is finished like um takes us about one or two months uh then we start pre-producing and producing and then uh finishing production so that uh the films can can be premiering as they will be in the toronto black film festival oh that's great aline thank you so much for your time have yourself a wonderful day Thank you as well. Have a nice day, you too. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Thank you. That was Aline Ribeiro, who is the coordinator for the Being Black in Canada program at the Fabienne Colas Foundation. And as she mentioned, for more information on the program, you can visit beingblackincanada.com.
And also remember, the Toronto Black Film Festival runs February 14th to the 19th. And for more information on that, you can visit torontoblackfilm.com. Coming up after the break, green hydrogen is becoming a renewable energy alternative. Lawrence Gunther is going to explain how it can assist in the transition away from fossil fuels. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. For a long time, hydrogen was seen as a questionable alternative to fossil fuels. This was largely due to the cost and the fossil fuels involved with its production. However, new deposits of naturally occurring hydrogen are renewing interest in the alternative. Explain more and about why green hydrogen is suddenly becoming a renewable energy alternative is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther on AMI-audio. Hello, Lawrence. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. That's great. So how can hydrogen assist in that move and transition away from fossil fuels? Well, you know, we learned, like, back in 1842... Long, that's a long time ago, right? That you could take hydrogen, you could take water and you could separate the hydrogen from the oxygen and it would release electrons, you know, electricity, right? So it was a hundred years later, they finally had a sort of working model of that. But by then, you know, fuel, gasoline, oil, it was all the rage and no one needed the hydrogen. So it just sat and it came back around. But, you know, then there was the cost of making hydrogen. You had to take coal or or you know hydroelectricity or fossil fuels you know and 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 create hydrogen use it to sort of make that separation and create that hydrogen cells because they didn't know it was occurring naturally in any sort of great amount but now we know that so you know maybe it's it's time maybe it's time to to give it another good look and so when it comes to hydrogen, like, how can it be used? Because we, we've heard a couple mm. of different, like, car manufacturers, like, uh, kind of put out, like, and toy with the idea of a hydrogen-powered car or things like that. But mm. how else could hydrogen be used in our daily lives? Well, the big question with the hydrogen car, and Toyota came up with uh, uh, some models 10 years ago. They had a, a test going on in California. They had three or four stations where you could fuel up. But it's like, how do you get the hydrogen out there? You know, it's like propane, right? you got to carry it around in these big tanks. It's combustible. It's compressed. It's liquefied, even more dangerous. You know, it's, it's an explosive. It's, you know, like it's creating a whole new network of gas stations and trucks to fill up those gas stations and distribution. It's a lot of infrastructure. So it really didn't go anywhere. Then they were thinking, well, maybe for big ships and trains and, uh, and, and large transport trucks, they could use it for that. But uh, now we're thinking that, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing to put in electric vehicles because, you could, you know, use the hydrogen cell, you know, where you basically take hydrogen and, and uh, it creates two products, it creates electricity and water and use that to drive your electric vehicle. You can also burn it, right? Like hydrogen is combustible. It's a gas. So you can burn it and create intensive heat for industrial processes, for manufacturing. You can mix it with other natural gases and, and things like that as well. So there's a few options there for different uses. 
And so with regards to vehicles, and, and as you mentioned, uh, maybe bringing it into electric vehicles, how would the hydrogen fuel cells like work with the batteries? Because batteries and uh, EVs is really that kind of big question. It's like, how, how sustainable are they? How long is it going to Like, what is, would the impact of having introducing hydrogen fuel cells to the batteries be? You know, that's the that's the million dollar question, right? Because batteries are really the trillion dollar question. Everyone wants to make the ultimate battery that's super light, that's super efficient, that charges really fast, that you can charge many, many times, you know, that holds a giant charge. But right now, what we have are batteries that weigh a lot. So like, a, you know, in a pickup truck like the uh, Ford 150 Lightning, you could have maybe 2,500 pounds of batteries in that truck. You know, they they really add up when you want to go far with it with batteries. The weight adds up pretty significantly. So you have to have a bigger vehicle, a more solid vehicle to carry that, and, and, and the cost of the battery. So what you can have with the hydrogen fuel cell, you're not going to eliminate the batteries because you're producing electricity. It's not like a gas pedal, an accelerator in your car where you can just press down and it makes more electricity really fast. And then you take off or you let your foot off the accelerator and you slow down because it creates less electricity. It doesn't work like that. But if you had a few batteries in the vehicle, you could have the generator, the hydrogen fuel cell generator, charging the batteries constantly, you know, with a with that trickle generation. And the batteries, what batteries are really good for is, you know, like flicking on a light and turning it off, turning on an electric motor and turning it off. Batteries can have a big push, a big power surge, and you can control that with accelerators, with controllers, you know, don't get in, into all the technology. So really you're looking at two, you look at the generator of the hydrogen fuel cell, and then you look at the battery to capture that energy and then to give it to you on demand as needed. Now, you did mention that we've, we've started to identify the hydrogen is forming naturally in the environment. What are environmentalists saying about capturing that hydrogen or, or potentially mining that hydrogen? Yeah, there's two thoughts on that one. One is that, you know, hydrogen, can't, it's not a greenhouse gas in itself, but there is, uh, if it does float up into the atmosphere, it can react with other uh, atmospheric particles and create a, a greenhouse gas type effect. So, you know, as soon as you start extracting it from the ground, you, you're running big pipes into the ground, you're taken out of the pipes, you're putting it into other pipes, you're putting it into other tanks and out of those tanks and into other pipes and trucks and tanks and such. So every time there's a joint, every time there's a connector, there's a leakage, right? So environmentalists are saying, we're just going to add to a lot of leakage, a lot of seepage of hydrogen. And once it, it, it escapes, it floats up pretty quick. So it's uh, you can't really capture it. Propane, you know, sort of is heavier. It just floats, it rests on the ground. Hydrogen is lighter, so it, it goes up. But others are saying, you know, we already have seepage of naturally occurring hydrogen taking place, fairy circles apparently, where you have these bleached out round areas on the ground. It's caused by natural hydrogen seepage. It, it sort of bleaches the ground and, and everything above it, and you, you end up with these fairy circle kind of um, patterns on the ground, and that's naturally occurring and seeping hydrogen. So others are saying, you know what, if we captured that, we might be able to reduce the amount of natural hydrogen seepage going into the atmosphere, and that would be a good thing. Now, the the question whenever a alternative or a green alternative is proposed, it always comes down to the, the price and the cost. So what are the costs around the use of hydrogen? 
I don't know. I looked a little bit into this, but, you know, can you really trust it? They're saying $1,000 to get a ton of hydrogen, which is way cheaper than extracting fossil fuels. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe, maybe that's true. You know, you wouldn't know until you really scale up. I mean, they, they said when the uh, proposed nuclear reactors said that we'd have free electricity, right? Well, that didn't turn out. So, you know, we realized later the cost of maintaining those nuclear power plants. The other cost is, again, you know, this the movement of hydrogen around, you know, getting it to fueling stations, getting it from the ground through, you know, various conveyances to a station where you can pull up with your hydrogen fuel cell power power vehicle and and top up your propane tank and 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 keep traveling so those are significant costs for sure but you know it, there's a chance you know you could get if you had a tap into it and you could sort of get a giant tank of it and then move that tank sort of to you know where maybe a, a port where all the ships come and you could fuel up a bunch of ships and they could go across the ocean and and just with hydrogen fuel instead of that nasty uh, bunker fuel that they're burning now that would be fantastic or or a truck station and you could fuel up a, a transport truck or you know for industrial processes like creating aluminum which are super high uh, electricity um you know intensive product uh, processes or or creating steel or other manufacturing processes you know you'd only have to move it into one spot and you could fire up those processes so there's some immediate um, benefits right there that we could have with this naturally occurring hydrogen yeah because you you have mentioned the fact it's like uh, the challenge of transporting the hydrogen getting it to the consumers but if you kind of contain it in these centralized areas or locations that you're using it in a specific way okay there can be the benefit what other potential drawbacks might there be beyond just the the transportation of the hydrogen itself well it it's 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 a gas right so it's dangerous you know as soon as you start carrying around giant cylinders of propane you know think about propane barbecue tanks right you know we all know barbecue tanks and you know that that's 20 pounds of propane you know you're going to get more than that if you try to fuel an electric vehicle you need more than 20 pounds of propane so in a sense you're you know you become a sort of a, a rolling um, bomb that could go off if you were impacted incorrectly and and, and something happened but, you know, we're carrying gas around in our, our vehicles now, you know, 30, 40 gallons of gas. That stuff's not exactly water, right? That goes up in a, in a flame and can spill out quite easily from its gas tank in, in an accident. So, yeah, there's ways of containing that. You know, we could, we could deal with that and, and, uh, and figure something out. I think, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. I think the fossil fuel industry, maybe, you know, we were so dependent and 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 hooked on to internal combustion engines and fossil fuel, and that was the way to go. And we loved the automobile, so there wasn't really much room for this. But there, now we're looking for alternatives, and we know batteries is, you know, we think well, no, batteries are going to get better and faster and lighter, but. Is it going to happen soon enough? And 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 then what does it take to make a battery? All those rare metals and where do they come from? So maybe maybe it's hydrogen's chance, right? Like this is kind of like the uh, you know the Beta Max versus VHF uh, wars back in the 1980s. You know which is going to win? I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think I think we're going to have a mix, you know, of solar and wind and hydro. And it looks like uh, nuclear is coming back too, but uh, maybe hydrogen is going to be a solution. They say there's enough underground that could satisfy our energy needs for hundreds of years. Wow. Well, 
Lawrence, we burned through this conversation, but before <laughs> I let you go, I need to find out what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Well, we're trying to stay seasonal, right? So we're going to look into the world of snowy owls, right? And, you know, and, and really, these are mystic beasts. I mean, they hunt in them during the day, not like owl, other owls that hunt at night and hide during the day. These owls come out. You can you can easily, you know, encounter one. They're fairly fearless. I mean, you can walk right up to them, and and you would think, well, what's is that dead? And then, you know, you can get within four or five feet of them in the, in the wild and they just stand there and they're just waiting for something to come along that they can eat. They're not afraid, but yeah, let's, we're going to learn more about snowy owls with Lily. Oh, that sounds great. Lauren, thank you. Have yourself a wonderful day. You too. That was Lawrence Gunther in Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther airs weekends at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up in 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller is here to share the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index rose modestly yesterday while U.S. markets were mixed ahead of today's U.S. inflation report. Toronto's TSX index gained 57 points to close at 21,067. New York's Dow Jones average gained 125 points and the Nasdaq lost 48. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index returned from holiday and surged 2.9% on tech-related gains and strong corporate earnings. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 743 Cents US. A BC nonprofit organization, Stand.Earth, says athletic wear giant Lululemon is misleading customers about its environmental impacts. It has asked Canada's Competition Bureau to investigate the Vancouver based company. And Tiger Woods and Sunday Red is no longer just a shirt, it's a brand. The golf legend announcing in LA last night an extended partnership with TaylorMade Golf to launch a lifestyle brand that will be called Sunday Red. From the Canadian Press, Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. It's now time for the Weather Report with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you have the weather of Southern Ontario on your mind today. I do. And after that conversation about hydrogen where you floated away, I'm here to bring you back down to earth with some sinking temperatures, unfortunately. So we saw that in December and January, they were warmer than usual in Ontario. And that was largely due to the El Nino. But that above seasonal trend, we did see that it continued into the start of February with the first 10 days of the month being dominated by very warm and mild temperatures. Uh, we saw this especially in the south where we surpassed 15 degrees Celsius in Windsor, London, Hamilton and Toronto. This warm start made February the warmest month on record for most of Ontario. And Southern Ontario was six to eight degrees warmer than usual, while Northern Ontario was 12 to 15 degrees Celsius above normal. Even though the North wasn't as warm as the South, it was still pretty warm and it was much warmer than usual. But sadly, this mild weather is over now. We're gonna expect temperatures to be around freezing in the South and below minus 10 in the north part of Ontario this week. So as February goes on, it is going to get even colder. So it looks like we're going to have to wait a little while for spring, Alex, but I don't know about you. Last week, I think it was Friday. I was out without a coat. It was 16 degrees where I was. So, you know, I was able to enjoy a little bit of a sneak peek of spring. Yeah, exactly. It was just 
that amuse-bouche, that little taste uh, to enjoy before the the cold weather inevitably returned. But we're still in February. It's okay. It's once we get into March, once we get into April, that's the type of weather conditions I want to experience then. I'm okay with it being in the negatives for February. Elizabeth, thank you very much. We'll check in later in the show with you. But coming up after the break, conversations around accommodations in the workplace, it carries on, it continues, because Rabia Hader is here to talk about the potential risks of disclosing and not disclosing your disability to your employer. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Workplace accommodation is a recurring theme on this program. It's important for employers to provide accommodation, but it can be a bit of a daunting task for employees to ask for those accommodations themselves, especially if you have a hidden disability and especially if you're starting a new gig. So. How do you go about asking for accommodations and when is it necessary to disclose your disability? Rabia Hader has some thoughts on this and she is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Hello, Rabia. How are you doing today? Great. Hi there. Okay. So, Rabia, whether one chooses to disclose a hidden or invisible disability is a matter of personal preference and personal choice. But what are the potential risks of disclosing or not disclosing your disability to your employer? Well, typically you're advised not to disclose. And when you don't disclose, then you run into surprises as far as I'm concerned. Like in my personal experience, having worked way back when in employment services as you know, a, somebody who arranged job accommodations and things like that. And just my own lived experience as somebody who's blind looking for work, I felt the disclosure up front at the beginning of the process just smoothed the way and eased the relationship. Whether the job was for me or not, uh, I just think that it started the relationship with the employer on the right foot. For me, if they had a hiccup around my lived experience of disability, I'd rather deal with it up front and move on and not get my hopes up and not get caught up in a process that's not going to go anywhere anyway. However, typically, it's it's a struggle for people, um, especially when they're dealing with invisible disabilities that aren't obvious. So if you're not in a wheelchair, you're not blind, you're not deaf, it's not easy to tell somebody that you have a disability. And sometimes it's not even easy for people to identify themselves as disabled. And so what is the the role that the employer has to, to create an environment that it is uh, that the employee can be comfortable if they want to disclose their, their disability or their accommodation needs? Well, they they need to make their policies clear. They need to promote... Uh, a sense of feeling safe uh, amongst their staff to disclose any needs. Uh, They need to advertise uh, the fact that they are a welcoming environment for people with disabilities to seek employment with them and request accommodation. 
And, and so within the intersection, there's always uh, disability. There is always gender that always can uh, be a factor. What role do you think gender has in terms of kind of having the, the faith to disclose someone, uh, 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 disclose to someone their, their disability or accommodation needs? Well, again, uh, Alex, in my opinion, uh, people, uh, as, as a woman, um, I feel very comfortable saying, hey, I'm blind, deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I will take advantage of identifying my disability in a cover letter or in an email when I'm seeking an opportunity because I just want people to be clear uh, of what I, uh, who I am, right? Um, obviously, my name gives away a lot. Um, so, so, you know, I just go for the, for the whole package, right, of discrimination if it's going to happen. Uh, but like I said, I feel it starts off the relationship in a more positive manner. Um, however, uh, so, uh, what I've also seen around me as somebody who's brought on people in different projects over the years, uh, that people with disabilities, particularly males with disabilities, have difficulty identifying their accommodation needs, have difficulty disclosing their disability, um, especially when it's invisible. In, Again, we, when it's a learning disability, when it's mm. mental health issues, things like that, they're not safe identifying. And we, we've spoken about the role that the employers have in, in this uh, uh, situation, but what what responsibilities uh, do the employee have in terms of ensuring that you know they are communicating the the information and their needs that they're able to fulfill the job that is required of them? Well, when there's a job to be done, and if you're not succeeding in it or you're unable to do tasks, you need to make sure that your supervisor, your employer, is aware of what those needs are. And sometimes it takes a lot of hard work and personal reflection to really discover um, and, and put emotions aside and say, hey, I really can't do this. I need X, Y, Z to support me in this way. I need technology. I need time. Uh, I need admin assistance, whatever it is. Or I simply, you know, this justice can't be done given the barriers I face due to my disability. And we, we've seen uh, many different companies come forward and say, we are an inclusive, we are a welcoming space for, for all, we support those who have different needs, but it doesn't always actually translate into action and uh, a, a, uh, a commitment to accessibility and accommodation. Have you ever come across that in, in your work experiences where, you know, the rhetoric doesn't match the action? Of course, that always happens. Like places that champion themselves as though we are, you know, uh, equity employers, we embrace uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. When push comes to shove, they often shove disabled people out. A lot of times, for example, uh, we know pre-pandemic that work at home for disabled people was denied again and again when it really was not a bona fide requirement for them to be in office to do the job that they're doing. They could easily do it remotely, but it was seen as going above and beyond 
uh, so-called accommodation need. It became a norm during the pandemic, and now post-pandemic, that debate is getting sparked again because employers want people coming in, they have these fancy offices that they want to occupy, and they feel that they need to be fair to everybody, so they need to force everybody to come back to work. And, there, and, and this is going to, you know, have a negative ripple effect on disabled people that finally thought, oh, my gosh, work at home is becoming normalized. For folks who do have invisible disabilities and are concerned maybe to lose out on a, a potential job opportunity or uh, potentially their situation with their current job may change, like what advice do you have for them in, in how to deal with that situation? Know your needs, be confident, put it on the table. I am a person with a disability, I'm blind, I need technology to support me in doing my work on the computer, and here's the technology I use, here are the programs that can help uh, you as an employer arrange for this technology. Make it simple. Make it simple for them. Give them what your needs are and give them the solution to your needs. Yeah, no, that's that's very key because if you don't vocalize it, if you don't share what your needs are and you're just struggling to get through, you know, whatever the tasks that you may have and, and if you don't approach it, then the, the employer doesn't have a have a responsibility to to address these in terms of an ex, uh, accessibility standpoint, but also yeah. may not even be aware that it's a, a barrier in terms of accessibility that is causing the performance to dip. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Rabia, thank you so much for this. I, I appreciate uh, chatting with you today. Hopefully, we can chat more often in the in the future. Then, thank you. Okay, have a good day. That was Rabia Khadur, uh, who is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty, and she's based in Mississauga, Ontario. In one minute, Laura Bain will be here with the entertainment report. But first, sleep trackers may be doing more than just monitoring your sleep. It may have a bigger impact as well. And here's Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. From ABC News, tech trends, sleep trackers like those found in Apple Watches and Fitbits may actually be affecting the quality of one's sleep. There is a drawback for some, and we, we, we sense that this is more common in individuals that really seek perfection in a lot of aspects of their lives. Dr. Rebecca Robbins of Harvard Medical School says the term orthosmia is used to describe when someone puts so much focus on sleep data that it actually makes their sleep worse. Dr. Tom Hildebrand is an associate professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine. He says sleep isn't the only metric that can be troublesome. When you're bombarded with all of this constant information about your heart, your sleep, your weight, your fitness level, all of this stuff, I think a lot of times the trouble comes from we're putting a lot of that expectation for understanding on the individual. So if you are feeling this way, says Robbins, I'd say take a break and try to come back to it when you're ready to, to engage with it in a healthy way. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. It's now time for the Entertainment Report with Laura Bain. And Laura, you came across an interesting kind of a program that you really want to highlight and, and kind of dive a bit deeper, and it has to do with indigenous, indigenous language in audio. 
Mm -hmm. um, so this is an audio series called Words and Culture, and its funding is thanks to a partnership between Sirius XM and the Community Radio Fund of Canada, and its aim is really to uh, revitalize Indigenous languages across the country. So it features sort of like five series, each with six episodes. Each series is focused on a different Indigenous language family. So the language families it's going to focus on are Iroquois, Athabascan, Anishinaabe Moan, or Ojibwe, Inuktitut, and Cree. And I do apologize. I did try to get my pronunciation there right, but I may not have gotten it perfect. Um, so I gave the first episode a listen this morning. And, you know, it's not like a language lesson, although you can expect to learn some simple phrases and words from the show. But it's more about each episode kind of getting into a discussion about the languages, the importance of the language to the culture, and sort of how the language works in context, for example, perhaps how a particular language, uh, you know, speaks to concepts in nature and what that tells you about that particular culture or how it works in relation to things to do with food. Um, and the, the episode that I listened to this morning featured traditional music with singing and percussion. And something that I think is just uh, really cool and important about this project is that the entire team working on it, so producers, hosts, guests, are all 100% uh, people who identify as Indigenous. And as I mentioned, the funding from this is coming from Sirius XM, uh, but it's not it's not something that's behind a paywall. You don't have to have Sirius XM to listen to it. There's lots of different ways. So I listened to it this morning through Apple Podcasts. It's also available just on wordsandculture.ca. And it's also airing on a number of local radio stations across the country. For example, here in Halifax, you can find it on CKDU FM, which is our university radio station. But Alex, how important do you think it is that funders like Sirius XM get behind projects like this that sort of center and serve marginalized communities? Well, I, I think it's huge. I, I mean, we how many times have we talked, even within the Entertainment Report, Laura, about authentic representation, about platforming voices from a different marginalized group, whether it's, you know, from a racialized group, whether it's an Indigenous group, whether it's a disability group. I think there is space for people to tell their stories in an authentic manner, and I really appreciate it when you have major corporations like SiriusXM, which is a huge, you know, radio, uh, satellite radio uh, platform and brand that can... Uh, take a step forward, invest in these types of projects that, that highlight content that you wouldn't normally find on those platforms. I, I think that's great. And I, I think it allows people to learn something new because from what you mentioned in uh, already, I'm going to tune in and find out more about this. I'm fascinated by the idea of what this could, uh, like what this program is like. I want to learn more. I want to give it a listen. So I'm, I'm all for it. But what about you? Yeah, I, I think it can be very... Um, useful when companies like this kind of use their privilege uh, to act as allies and, and engage in these kind of product uh, projects. I think it can be part of decolonization and reconciliation efforts. At the same time, it does make me a little bit uh, nervous. And I think that for me, the, the key component when you have this kind of funded by um, 
like a, a for-profit company is that creative control has to still rest entirely with the community and with the content creators. And it seems like that's the case with this. So that's um, a very positive thing. Now that's great that you're going to check this out. I think that by checking out this audio series, you're not only going to maybe learn some new words and new phrases, but also learn more about uh, Indigenous cultures across the country. And one reason that this is so important is because there's not a lot of resources out there for learning many Indigenous languages. Uh, for example, I looked on Duolingo today. There is not any, uh, there is Navajo on there, but mm. apart from that, it's very limited in terms of Indigenous languages. And uh, even under the best of circumstances, languages can be difficult to learn. Have you had any experiences with trying to learn a language before, Alex? I know you've done some traveling so i'm yeah. thinking maybe you've tried to pick up a at least a phrase or two here you know i i have tried many different languages i have failed many different languages uh, um as uh, as my father once described i do not have the propensity for a language which i always thought was quite fitting is a very colloquial beautiful way to say I just don't understand how languages work in general, so I struggle. I, I tried before I went to, to Germany last fall to, to pick up a couple of phrases and stuff, and and I had some in my, my back pocket. I never really ended up using it, and I think I just don't have that confidence to really kind of try to speak uh, uh, in another language because I am always just very self-conscious, and I just never feel like I have a full grasp of the rules around the language. I, I think that's kind of my biggest sticking point. But what about you, Laura? Well, I speak a little bit of French, but I, um, you know, was in France earlier in the year and I, or last year, I guess. And I, I too, even though I can speak quite a few words, I get very self-conscious about whether I'm speaking it properly or how my pronunciation is. Now, I've tried to improve that. I did try using Duolingo. I didn't find it was accessible at all. There was a lot of images. So I've sort of taken to watching French cartoons and uh, listening to French podcasts and slowing the speed way down. But I think, you know, even if you can just learn a couple of phrases like hello and uh, please and thank you, it can go a lot, a uh, long way towards kind of bridging the cultural divide when you are uh, in someone else's in someone else's space. Just making that effort, I think, is often appreciated. Well, it also shows that there's an interest in in, in learning uh, the local uh, culture, language, things like that as well. So it it, it kind of can endear you to uh, to locals if you are a tourist visiting somewhere new. But Laura, thank you so much for this. Have yourself a, a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks, Alex. You as well. Okay, that was Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. And coming up after the break, I got the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for the sports chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming and audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It is Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. Coming up on the second hour of the show, how much do online reviews impact your decision to consume literature? Journalist Rebecca Dingwell will explore this topic. 
Plus, there is another edition of the weekly news quiz. Elizabeth Moeller, Brock Richardson, and Karen McGee put their knowledge to the test. All that and more to come, but we begin with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, Ottawa and BC announced $733 million in new funding over five years to improve health care for seniors. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland says it's the first agreement on aging with dignity in Canada. We see a strengthening the safety and quality of long-term care uh, generally in this agreement, improvement to the quality of dementia care, increased access to palliative end-of-life care to people outside of hospitals, to personalize care, and make sure there's greater oversight. BC Health Minister Adrian Dick says the money will go a long way to supporting the province's aging population. We're going to use that money to make significant improvements to allow people to live longer at home and to, and to make better preparation to go into long-term care, to improve, as uh, Minister Holland has suggested, dementia care, and also to invest in our workforce. Over to Ontario now, OPP say that they have recovered the bodies of two missing people who fell through the ice on a lake. Naira Ahmed files this report. Police say on Sunday afternoon, three people went through the ice on Charleston Lake, northeast of Kingston, Ontario. One person managed to get out of the freezing waters. Officers say the two missing bodies were located and recovered with help from the OPP Underwater Search and Recovery Unit and Aviation Services. Police are reminding the public to stay off the ice, especially with the mild winter weather. Naira Ahmed, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And then finally over to the Atlantic and this is a story uh, that Michelle McQuig first brought to our attention. This is a follow-up as one woman who was injured by the propane explosion at a senior's residence in Cape Breton has died. Lisa Laporte has more. The son of 73-year-old Glenda Orachok says she died Sunday in a Halifax hospital after suffering serious burns in the blast at the Sydney Seniors Residence on Friday. He says snow fell from the roof of the residence onto propane tank lines outside his mother's apartment, noting the leaking gas somehow ignited and caused the explosion. It happened a week after a historic storm dumped more than 150 centimetres of snow on Cape Breton. Orachok's son says he's not laying blame on anyone for the accident, noting he's waiting for the investigation to see exactly what happened. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. And that's it for the regional news update. It's now time for Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, you have the Toronto Raptors on your mind because there's a couple of different things that you've started to kind of think and, and, and kind of toy with in your mind when it comes to the Raptors and what their current situation is like. Yes, indeed. So over the weekend, I was watching the Toronto Raptors in their back-to-back uh, -back scenario uh, over the weekend. They started with uh, the Houston Rockets, where they won 107-94. And then they went and played Cleveland, and they lost 119-95. Uh, this was a tale of very two different-looking teams over the weekend. And it got me thinking, Alex, 
what can we do about this? I understand the fact that back-to-backs are necessary because you thus need to get so many games, so many teams in uh, in a window of time where you need to have the season finished. But I was thinking, Alex, and I'm going to give you two options, and I and I would like to know which of the two you would you would lean towards or if you have a third idea. So option one is that if you're playing a back-to-back, the other opponent must also be playing a back-to-back. They cannot be uh, waiting for you in their rink or the respective rink that they're going to be playing you. Or the second option is the only way we play back-to-backs is if you play the same team two nights in a row or two out of the three nights in a row, whatever the situation is, and that's how we handle back-to-backs. What do you think? So personally, I prefer the second option. I, I think you should really lean into it. And not only back-to-back, it should be a home and away. So both teams get that same experience. So you you basically you start in one city and then you, you go to the other city. It's the same two teams playing each other. Because I, I also like the little mini like series that kind of develop throughout a season. This is the same thing for hockey as basketball. Baseball already does it. You you already have these type of like four, five, six game stretches within a a single kind of team competition where you'll kind of go back and forth with these two teams. I'd like to see more of that in the NBA. I want to see more of that in the NHL because it adds some excitement, some intrigue during the season because it can be very hard hard to gauge how a team is playing against another potential contender or or pretender if, you know, the situations around when they're playing. Like if they're coming off a five-game, like, uh, for let's say choose Toronto Raptors as an example, if they take a five-game West Coast road trip and then they come back home and, and face a, a good team, chances are, you know, they're not going to be in a position necessarily to have the best chance to win. Whereas if you kind of have it that, okay, they're facing the team, they, they were both on the West Coast, now they're back in Toronto, they're both experiencing that jet lag, the travel, all those types of factors, you make it more about the game, not about the situation. What is your preference, Brock? Yeah, I I like to lean towards the idea of let's, do a series let's be fair about it let's have both teams in similar scenarios i i I like exactly what you just outlined i think that there's nothing worse than when you come off a west coast swing and it's like oh goodness the team looks like god awful and i don't know what i'm gonna what i'm watching and it's it's not always fun to watch that so for me i I, that's what i would lean towards let's do a series because I've grown to like baseball when you play, you know, over a weekend, you play the same teams three or four times, no matter what happens. And then eventually you go into their home ballpark and you do the same kind of thing. So I, I like it. And I just think that that's where the NBA sort of needs to, to lean to, because these are big, tall guys who are susceptible to injuries of calves, ankles, knees, that kind of thing. And so the more you put on it, the more your competition could become lesser than it should have been well and i I will also say too like i think your first option is much more practical in terms of how uh that is much more likely to be instituted uh from a league perspective but i I, yeah i I mean anytime you can kind of have these mini series within a a season it's more excitement for the fans plus two it is also better preparation for a team going into the playoff because you play a different team every single night or every other night, 
But then once the playoffs come, you're you're locked in a best of seven uh, competitions. So why not have a bit more preparation on how to play a team multiple times in quick succession? I, I think that only served to better prepare a team as well. I mean, if you look at even how they handle the playoffs, you mm-hmm. don't see back-to-back situations for the team because we're outlining the exact scenario that we're talking about here. You might play one game off one day, play another. Even if it is in the same city, they're still getting a day off. And then if if there's a travel day associated, sometimes in some leagues add a second day for travel so that they can get the best of the competition for the playoffs or the final. I just think they should be able to do that within the season now having said that all that alex i do recognize the fact that if i was to look at the spreadsheet that they have to put together for the <laughs> nba season or any of the seasons it would be difficult and it's not an easy science to just do one thing over another yeah but brock that's why they get paid a lot of money to come up with those schedules and you know who else gets paid a lot of money head coaches to uh to motivate and lead their teams to success but you, you had uh, some questionable um, and uh, some concerns around a potentially questionable way to motivate a team when it comes to the Toronto Raptors? So all season long, the Toronto Raptors have not won three games in a row this year, which I think is a surprise. And they had another couple of opportunities over the weekend to accomplish that. And it came out after the game that head coach Darko Ryakovich for the Toronto Raptors had said that his his motivation for his team to go out for a dinner is still on the table. I thought when we heard this at the beginning of the season, and I thought the backlash that he received from, you know, outside sources, I didn't think we were going to hear the next thing of it, but apparently it's still on the table. My view, Alex, is quite simple. This is not high school. Uh, you shouldn't need to be motivated by, by meals. You should just be motivated because you're making lots of money and you get to do something you love. Yeah, so the the head coach basically offered to take the team out for dinner if they could string together three wins, which I agree with you, Brock. Um, in principle, these are top professionals. These are the best athletes in the sport in the world. They shouldn't need motivation like that in order to play their best, to to be competitive, to be kind of in, involved in uh, wanting to win and, and wanting to get the best out of themselves and their team during a game. But... That said, we see it time and time and time again where you think, why would you need to be motivated to be able to play this game and and make millions of dollars? Some players do. They can have all the talent in the world. It's all about the motivation, and they need to be motivated. They need coaches to pull the right strings and and kind of find a way to get the best out of them. Now, you don't need that from the best players. Uh, I'm sure in basketball, LeBron, he never needs motivation. Michael Jordan never needed motivation. Connor McDavid doesn't need motivation to go and play the game, but there's other players that do. So it doesn't surprise me. It just, you know, it, it always kind of boggles my mind that you're, you'd be at this level in any sport and require that kind of push or incentive to do your best. Yeah. And, and it's funny that we bring this up because the players, uh, when it was brought up the first time around, the players were kind of like, yeah, we don't like they danced around it and they're kind of like, yeah, we appreciate the sentiment, but that's not the reason we should be winning or losing. And I think that speaks volume when the player comes out and says, 
hey, now, no, no, I need to hold myself accountable. I don't need no disrespect. I don't need your dinner to motivate me to 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 be at my best. So. Well, you know why? It's because they, they were embarrassed, because that offer is an embarrassing offer. So it kind of uh, points to the pride of the player. It's like, if this is what it's going to take, like, we all know that this is on the table, that if you win three games in a row, you're going out for a dinner, and then for some fans, regardless of what ends up being the motivating factor, some will point to that and be like, well, that could have been a factor, and, and that's an embarrassing thing to to have on on your, your stat sheet or, or your, your bio saying that you're motivated by uh, team dinners. Well, and maybe that's, let's be fair to Darko. Maybe that's Darko's sort of way, okay, guys, mm -hmm. you're not playing well for me. I'm going to kind of embarrass you a bit by offering this rinky-dink team dinner here i like maybe that's the thing maybe he would hold to it if it came to but maybe that's the point of do i really have to come out into the public eye and say if you guys do well i'll bring you out for dinner and you can have dessert like maybe that is the strategy and that's not something a lot of people are talking about rather it's the offer that people are like get out of here but it could be that that he's like i'll i'll put this out here make them kind of crawl a little bit and see what they do. It hasn't so. worked yet, but who knows? Maybe it can still come through this season. Brock, thank you so much. We'll be checking in with you later on in the show. Uh, but coming up next, Rebecca Dingwell is going to stop by because she wants to answer this question. How much do online reviews impact your decision to consume literature? You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It can be nearly impossible to choose the right book to read. Browsing rows of books and checking out the front cover or maybe reading that back page can only reveal so much. People often turn to online reviews to help make their decision easier. However, those reviews may not paint a full picture either. Rebecca Dingwell is here to discuss all things literature, and she is a freelance journalist based in Halifax. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing today? Hi, Alex. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Rebecca, as part of the conversation leading up to the story, you mentioned that you volunteer on the book tracker site StoryGraph. What is the goal of that site? So, I guess I could, I could answer this question with so many layers, but... At its core, it's a site where, first of all, you can just track what you're reading. And second of all, it will help generate recommendations for you based on a few factors like mood, pacing, length, genre, that sort of thing. So it not only helps you track and provide stats for you, it also um, helps you find your, your next read if that's something that you're looking for. And so why did you want to get involved with this site? Partially, I think when I was doing my uh, MFA, I learned a little bit more about the behind the scenes of publishing 
the nature of literature reviews, that kind of thing. And I just wanted to get more involved with that side of things and see kind of how that worked behind the scenes. I was also kind of moving away from um, Storygraph's main competitor, which is Goodreads. Um, that's owned by Amazon. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be on that site anymore. So I thought that if I was going to move over, maybe I'd, I'd sign up to volunteer too. And, and so like, what what is the value of having a, a site like that, a book tracker site that can offer up some recommendations and things like that based on what your reading habits are, opposed to just looking at online reviews? I think one thing about the Storygraph is uh, I think you can find things in a way that's a bit more nuanced. One thing that I've seen just from people who use the site, uh, feedback that the site has gotten is they really appreciate the aspect of the content warnings. So say, for example, I don't want to uh, read a book that uh, has to do with sexual assault or sexual violence at all. Um, I can actually go into my preferences and say, never recommend me a book where this content warning is present. So, and then that's something that I, I don't have to worry about. Or if a book does come up for me, there's a little yellow exclamation point just to say, hey, uh, this book has been flagged as uh, containing something that you've previously said you didn't want to read about. And I can say, well, I can look at the book and say, well, uh, this is interesting enough to me that maybe I want to read it anyway, or I can pass it over for for that reason. So I think it just provides a little bit more information and um, a little bit more insight than some of the um, existing options do. Well, and the other thing too, as well, if it, it, if it does flag, you know, oh, there, this is in the book, that's something that you may not be able to find on a, a simple review or on a, a description of the book because it could be just part of a plot point, not the entire plot itself. So it could be something that you only discover uh, that halfway through the reading. So it, it's great that it kind of marks it ahead of time, especially if you can set those preferences for yourself. You mentioned that you wanted to find an alternative to Goodreads, which is uh, owned by Amazon. Why did you seek out uh, an alternative and why have others uh, uh, kind of sought to find alternatives to Goodreads as well? I think a big part of it is just that, that connection to Amazon. I think even for those of us who might use Amazon once in a while, um, I, I think trying to slowly move away from the sort of big company, and, and I, I know that a lot of other readers also have issues with the way Amazon markets books, for example. So I, I think that a lot of folks, I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself, but just from talking to people, a lot of folks have mixed feelings about um, Amazon, its approach to producing books, its approach to promoting books. So I think to look and say, oh, hey, this is a site that is doing something potentially better um, than Goodreads is and is also independently owned. And I think partially for that reason, really values user feedback in a way that perhaps um, a site owned by a large company doesn't as much. I think that that is just really appealing to a lot of people. Well, and another factor to, uh, to consider whenever you're looking at trying to find recommendations online for, for especially something like literature, you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of nuance can be kind of stripped away. Like, Talk a bit more about how the online kind of medium of review and ratings and things like that 
how that really may not be best suited for reviewing books and, and literature specifically. Yeah, so I don't want to I don't want to demonize the quote unquote book talkers because I think there is a place for that and I think it has its use. That being said, I personally find a lot of the book content on TikTok just because of the nature um, of the platform. Like, okay, I want to make a review that's really punchy and maybe something sums things up in just a few words. Like, okay, this book is a romantic comedy, but it's uh, has similar tones and themes to Dracula, and it's like uh, enemies to lovers, and that's what you get. And I'm like, okay, so I maybe have some idea of the themes and the tropes, but do I really have enough information to know if that book's going to be for me? Um, I know nothing about the writing style. I know nothing about the author. Um Really, you haven't specified any any themes. You've just told me Dracula. So um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not a huge exaggeration in uh, some of the ways that uh, people will review books online. Because part of it, too, I think, is when you're uh, an influencer, you're trying to get clicks as well. So it's not just about providing the review. It's about uh, sparking discussion. And if somebody thinks the book sounds really interesting or really strange based on your, then that's going to, you know, build up your comment section and things like that. So it's just, I think some of it just has to be taken with a grain of salt because the, the short form uh, social media is so popular right now. Do you feel that there is a, a way that you can provide that nuance, that, that comprehensive um, kind of review of such a, a long form uh, of medium like literature, like a full book, like can you effectively condense 300 plus pages into a short form uh, kind of digestible review or is it just a, a conflict and clash of two different styles of media? I don't want to say it's impossible. I just think it's very difficult, even speaking as someone who has written book reviews that are, say, like, a hundred words long. It's really, really hard to uh, paint a picture for somebody in a short time or, or such a small space. Um, all you can really do is try. I think what we just kind of need to do better as readers and as reviewers is maybe kind of look a little bit deeper in ourselves. Like, okay, what did this book make me feel? What did this book make me think about? Um, rather than always relying on sort of the, I don't know, the, the tropification of it all or comparing it to um, existing books. And I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad or that they can't be helpful in a review. Um, I just think that we need to do a little bit more just to, to do justice to, to the books that we like and the books that we're recommending. Now, review bombing is a very real thing in, like, film and television where, you know, you get uh, uh, slews of people who are, are leaving, uh, like, super negative comments, maybe, like, one-star reviews on content that may not even be available or that they have even consumed. And that can have a real impact on what the mass public may, may end up seeing. And if they see a bunch of one-star reviews, maybe they end up avoiding it. Does this kind of concept manifest itself when it comes to the online literature uh, reviews uh, side of things as well? Big time. This is actually a huge issue. I think, in fact, the New York Times did an article on this, mostly in relation to Goodreads, uh, 
last year, I think. Um, it, it's becoming a huge issue and an issue that I think the book world is struggling with how to deal with. Um, I remember uh, some time ago, for example, there was an author who was uh, tweeting, complaining about uh, four-star reviews that she was getting, in fact, um, and saying, well, why aren't these people just rating it five stars? So, of course, people read that and thought, mm -hmm. oh, uh, you know, what a what a whiny writer, what an entitled person. And then they went and completely review bombed her. And, you know, you might look at something like that and say, well, you know, mess around and find out. Uh, she deserved it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, but those people were making those reviews related to, like, kind of how they felt about her personally rather than how they felt about the book. And what are the issues around that? What are the ethics around that? How do we how do we almost like separate the person from, from the book in that way? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't know, it's, it's a really hard conversation to have, um, especially when it's people who in some cases have done real harm um, and maybe an author is a bad person or a malicious person has harmed other authors. That's happened as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, review review bombing happens, and it's just it's it's something that I don't know the solution to. I don't think anybody does right now, but it certainly is an issue, and it is a topic of conversation that comes up a lot. Well, and, and uh, your your conversation and your topic inspired our daily poll question for the day. So I want to end the conversation on this by asking you the daily poll, and which is how much do online reviews impact your opinion? To, or decision to consume media? A lot, a little, or not at all, Rebecca? I would say a little with a caveat that it kind of depends on who's reviewing it. If it's somebody who, if it's somebody who I know has a similar taste to me, then um, that might give them a little bit more weight. If it's somebody um, I don't know, then I might just be like, well, well, I might just take it with a, with a grain of salt. Um, short answer is it depends, but for the sake of the poll, I'll say a little. Okay, perfect. Rebecca, thank you so much for chatting all things books with me today. Have yourself a wonderful day. You too. That was Rebecca Dingwell. She is a freelance journalist based in Halifax. Coming up after the break, we assembled the round table and Elizabeth Moeller asked you all, well, asked me and Brock Richardson all about smart mirrors. We'll find out more. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Meissen for Dave. Before we welcome back in Brock Richardson, Elizabeth Moeller, you wanted to talk all about smart mirrors. 
Yes, I kind of feel like I should be singing the mirror, mirror on the wall fairy tale song, but I'll spare you. Um, yes, so Be Mind is a new smart mirror. It was developed by Barracuda. And the purpose of this mirror is to help you reduce stress. So by looking into the mirror, you can unlock it with Face ID, and the mirror can detect by your body language, gestures, your voice tone, whether you're stressed, and suggest music, lighting, or perhaps positive or calming affirmations to help you with your mood. So it's really reading into the verbal and nonverbal cues. So, you know, I was thinking about smart mirrors and I wanted to ask you, Barack Richardson, first, would you or would you not buy a smart mirror? Why or why not? It's an interesting uh, concept. I don't I don't do a lot of mirror looking into the mirror. So when I heard the topic be presented it was like may mm, but but if it knows if it can track sort of how i'm feeling and maybe help me figure out a way to to reverse that or change that yeah i, I might be on board with this elizabeth you said something there that i think is just plain ridiculous you have to unlock your mirror with face i you know what uh, uh, doesn't need to be unlocked with my face? A normal mirror. I can just look really? at the mirror. You know, it, 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 it's, it's always there. It's always <laughs> present. I can always see my face in the mirror unless I'm coming out of the shower and everything's steamy. I think there's just, you know, I understand on some level people love technology. They love the integration. They love the smart devices. I just think, can we just not let certain things be what they are like do we need to literally reinvent the mirror in this situation like the mirror serves a very clear purpose already <laughs> I, I don't necessarily no pun see intended well no i i didn't even mean for that one i'm just so fired oh, up about mirrors you're so punny. <laughs> i i did not even under think i would be this like frustrated or angry or passionate about mirrors i i never quite gave it much thought but I just think there's too much in terms of smart technology, let alone, oh no, my mirror is having an issue connecting to my Wi-Fi. Oh, I, I, I can't use all the features on it. Like, to me, this is just seems like too much. But what do you think, Elizabeth? Are you yeah, in favor of this? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, um, you know, from what I'm understanding, it's a regular mirror um, for, you know, folks that just, you know, are wanting to look in the mirror. But if you um, are the owner of the smart mirror and you've set up your your face ID, then it can unlock and become a smart mirror. You know, I I am on the fence. I'm fence sitting. I think if it could integrate, and I'll be curious to see as it rolls out, because it did it did win an award at the Consumer Electronics Show. So, you know, I, I think that's that's got to have a little bit of weight for me anyway. Um, <clears throat> If it can integrate with things like, you know, your Amazon and I can do things with it beyond just telling me, Elizabeth, you're awesome. Or Elizabeth, you know, you've got this, um, which, you know, are, are helpful things to say. But I think if it could do more integration, like it would be kind of cool to just glance at something and unlock it and have it, um, you know, turn on and off lighting according to your mood or, you know, be able to turn up and down the music or uh, maybe even turn on AMI. I don't know. The possibilities are endless. I do think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a gimmick, but I I tend to be one that likes to to play with gimmicks, and I like to kind of see what's what's out there. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's sort of like what's the need? Does it have value add? You know, I, I think sort of we're we're all kind of saying mm, fun toy, but not sure about the value add. But you know, Alex, just for fun, I'm going to ask you. If you could, what would you ask a smart mirror if you could? 
So I think the one thing I would love uh, for a smart mirror to actually do, to give it some uh, some respect, is the idea of, okay, if, you know, in the morning my, my eyesight ain't the best, my eyes need to wake up, mm. do I have hair in my face? Do I have something that nice. I may not necessarily, like, is my beard disheveled? Do I need to brush it in a certain way? Am I missing a couple of strands of hair? That would be something useful that my smart yeah. uh, smart mirror that I would own would have to do. Uh, Brock, what about you? Is there what would you ask a smart mirror? To the same level that you were just talking about, the first thing that came into my mind was, do I have sleep in my eyes? Do I have, mm. you know, what? What else? Is there something that's that's making me look not? presentable if i'm if i'm putting on a tie and i don't have somebody to put it on maybe i could look in the mirror and it says your tie is crooked to the left your tie is crooked to the right it's straight those are the kind of things that i would i would say although then i would also add in the caveat if we start having smart devices do these kind of things then the personal relationships that i exist with that help me mm -hmm. do these things become less and less because technology is able to do it on its own that's fair elizabeth what would you ask a smart mirror yeah aside i think from aside from what we've already talked about the visual aspect um i might ask it things like what color uh, a piece of clothing is because sometimes i have difficulty with color matching and then of course if in some you know near distant future our smart mirrors can start connecting to our other in-home devices of course i would ask it to turn on ami because that just <laughs> seems like the thing to do a good corporate citizen. I appreciate it, Elizabeth. <laughs> no Elizabeth problem. Brock, you guys don't go anywhere because you're going to be coming back after the break for the weekly news quiz. But you may have noticed Rami Amuthan was not here on the roundtable. Never fear, because I can still tell you what is coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramia. They have nutritionist Julia Carentas discussing super seeds their differences and the benefits to them. Plus, Laura Bain shares a new report which says that Nova Scotia has the highest poverty rate in the country. So you can check out those uh, segments and more by watching Kelly and Ramya, which airs 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Coming up after the break, we'll rope in Karen McGee for another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Sound means the weekly news quiz helps us wrap up Tuesday's edition of Now with Dave Brown. We can't do the news quiz without contestants, so let's welcome back in Elizabeth Moeller, Brock Richardson, and bring in Karen McGee. Elizabeth, hello again. Hello again. Brock, hello again. Hello again. And hello, Karen. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so in case you at home do not know the rules of the game, let me explain. We have three rounds of questions, three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you get it wrong, 
you go on to the next person. If you choose to hear the options, you only get one. And if none of the contestants get it right, then I get a point, and that's what I always look forward to. The order <laughs> of the contestants were drawn by Mary Daniel, the wife of Paul Daniel. Today's order is going to be Elizabeth Moeller, then Karen McGee, and then Brock Richardson. And to help keep score, I have my trusty piece of paper and pen. So we will start in the world of international news. Round one, question one goes to you, Elizabeth. Okay. Voters in which European capital city approved an effort to drastically increase parking fees for SUVs and other heavy cars? I think I'll have the choices. Okay, is it Berlin? Paris or Madrid? I think it's Berlin. That is incorrect. So, oh, Karen, no. you have a choice, a uh, chance to get on the board. Is it Paris or Madrid? My first instinct was Paris. So I'm going to guess Paris. That is correct. Karen McGee is on the board. The new parking rate will triple parking fees for SUV drivers from out of town to 18 euros or $26 per hour. Question number two goes to Karen. She has a chance to double up and get a commanding lead. So, Karen, which Ivy League school in the U.S. announced it would once again require prospective students to submit standardized test scores for admission? Oh, I'll take the choices, please. Is it Brown, Dartmouth, or Harvard? I'm going to say Dartmouth. That is correct as well. Karen McGee getting out to an early lead. So during the pandemic, all Ivy League schools switched to a test optional policy where all applicants could choose to submit their SAT scores or not. So question number three goes to Brock. Last week, almost all of the National Botanical Garden in Vina del Mar was destroyed by a wildfire in this South American country. What country was it? Need the options, please. Was it Brazil, Uruguay, or Chile? I'm gonna go with Uruguay. That is incorrect. So, Elizabeth, you have a chance to steal. Was it Brazil or Chile? I'm gonna say it was Chile. That is correct. Elizabeth is on the board. So wildfires in, in there. And so after round one, Karen is leading with two points. Elizabeth has one. And Brock has yet to get on the board. In round number two, these questions are all related to topics in Canada. Karen, you begin this round. So, a Canadian politician called Bell's Media's decision to lay off 4,800 workers a garbage decision. Who said it? That would be the uh, Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. That is correct. Two points for Karen. She's already up to four. Trudeau said that the company should know better in making such extreme and extensive layoffs. Question number two of round number two, we go to Brock Richardson. Brock, what eastern Ontario city declared a state of emergency last week after its health officials announced 23 overdoses in two days? I need the options, please. Was it Brockville? Cornwall or Belleville? Belleville. That is incorrect. Elizabeth, you have a chance to steal. Was it Brockville or Cornwall? I am going to say it was Brockville. That is correct. 
Yes, Elizabeth. my hometown. Woohoo! <laughs> not not something Sorry. you necessarily want to be cheering. I got it you got it correct. There's always a positive silver lining. And Elizabeth, you actually have a chance to get another point because it is your okay. question round. Uh, question three of round number two. So, which member of the Toronto Maple Leafs is in a dispute with the Canada Revenue Agency? Oh, I need the options on that one. <laughs> is it Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, or John Tavares? I am going to say it's A. Austin Matthews is incorrect. Karen McGee, you have a chance to steal. Is it Mitch Marner or Jonathan uh, John Tavares? I'm hoping it's John Tavares. You are correct. It is John Tavares. The CRA determined Tavares's 2018 income was $17.8 million, higher than reported, and ordered the player to pay $6.8 million in taxes over 38% plus 1.2 million in interest. So, you know, for, for some athletes, oh, a bit of that's pocket a lot of money. Yeah, that's but, money. Uh, you know, a, I think he is going to be able to afford it, but they're also in court. He'll be so okay. He'll, he'll be, be okay. okay. Don't worry. He'll be okay. Okay, so after the end of round two, Karen McGee is still in a commanding lead with five points. Elizabeth is in second with two points, and Brock, unfortunately, is still not on the board. However, he has a chance to get on now. You can get back and make this game somewhat competitive. So, Brock, we start with you for this question. Which member of Saturday Night Live was announced as the host of the annual White House Correspondents Association dinner in April? I need the options. Was it Michael Che? Was it Bowen Yang or Colin Jost? Bowen Yang. That is incorrect. Elizabeth, is it? Colin. It's Colin Jost. That is correct. A My point. brother's name, so I have to know that one. <laughs> <laughs> Jost had been writing for SNL since 2005, and he began fronting the show's new parody with in 2014 with Michael Che. They are both the co-head writers of SNL currently. Elizabeth, we go back to you. You have a chance to potentially tie Karen right now if you get oh, the question right without the options. We'll see if you can do it. U.S. Governor Laura Kelly signed a bill last week that would eliminate the minimum wages for workers with disabilities in her state. What state was it? I'm going to need the options. Okay, but that's going to mean you won't be necessarily be able to tie Karen in this game. But if you want the options, I will give them to you. Was it okay. Vermont, Delaware, or Kansas? I'm going to go with Vermont. That is incorrect. Oh. Karen McGee, you have a chance to steal and solidify your win in stunning fashion. I'm going to say uh, it was Delaware and Kansas, just for reference. Yeah, I, I'm going to say Kansas. That is correct. Kansas's state, uh, Senate Bill 15 aims to create more employment opportunities for uh, disabled workers in Kansas. In addition, the legislation's intent is to incentivize employees to move away from paying them below the minimum wage by using a matching grant program an expanded income tax credit eligibility. Karen, this is a foregone conclusion at this point, but you have one more question. 
So let's just do it for fun. Which auto company reached one point uh, reached a 1.5 million dollar agreement to settle claims of improper hazardous waste disposal at its factories across California? I'm going to take the choices, even though I don't really need them. The <laughs> just like for funsies. Okay, so it was it Nissan, Tesla, or Honda? A Tesla. That is correct. That was my gut. Oh. Yeah, in, investigators uh, searching through Tesla's trash discovered hazardous waste violations at more than 100 facilities. Tesla w uh, was being sued by 25 counties across California. And, of course, it ended up being settled to a $1.5 million uh, fine. Now, because we do have a couple minutes on the clock, I am going to ask the tie breaking question for fun. Before we do, let's celebrate the winner of the news quiz by a large mar margin. It was Karen McGee. Congratulations, Karen, on the big win. Thank you. Me and the Kansas City Chiefs, two in a row. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're lucky nice. this week because I was not a contestant. I was. I left know. I'm always lucky when you're not a contestant. <laughs> okay. It's the only time I win anymore. Okay, so we do have a bit of time. Let me ask you the tie-breaking question, just for fun, and I will remind everyone how this works. So, I will ask each contestant to give a guess, and this is going to be a question of who is going to be closest to the. Pin. So, last week, Caroline Peru, uh, Peru, Quebec's tourism minister, announced the figure and amount it would take to cost uh, Quebec to tear down the Olympic Stadium. Many observers questioned the figure, saying that North American cities have torn down other stadiums for hundreds of millions of dollars less. So, that should give you a bit of a hint. So, what is the estimated cost to tear down the Olympic Stadium? Elizabeth, I'll start with you. I'm going to say a hundred and ninety-seven million. Brock Richardson, I will ask you, what do you think it's going to cost uh, Quebec to tear down the Olympic Stadium? Three hundred and fifty million. Karen McGee, what is your guess? I'm going to say seven fifty. Million. 750 million. Karen, you are by far the closest. None of you were all that close. It is estimated to cost two billion with a oh, B dollars. Give me some uh, disclosures. I'll take care of it. Uh, yeah. She released the estimate uh, the estimate last week, and uh, as she presented a comparatively cheaper plan to spend eight hundred and seventy million dollars to replace the unstable and hazardous roof of the stadium, which was built for the nineteen seventy six Olympic Games. Well, that is all the time we have. Elizabeth, thank you. Brock, thank you. And Karen, thank you very much. See you next week. See you next week. That's all the time week. we have for the show. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. I will be back again. We have a slew of fun, exciting conversation to be had. And I just want to quickly thank all the guests who appeared on the show today. Be sure to check out the podcast, listen to all the interviews, and enjoy yourselves out there. I'm Alex Mike. See you tomorrow. Hey, 
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.